Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 13, Freemen. Yes, it is strange how little a while at a time a person can be contented. Only a little while back, when I was riding and suffering, what a heaven this peace, this rest, this sweet serenity in this secluded shady nook by this purling stream would have seemed, where I could keep perfectly comfortable all the time by pouring a dipper of water into my armor now and then. Yet already I was getting dissatisfied, partly because I could not light my pipe, for, although I had long ago started a match-factory, I had forgotten to bring matches with me, and partly because we had nothing to eat. Here was another illustration of the childlike improvidence of this age and people. A man in armor always trusted to chance for his food on a journey, and would have been scandalized at the idea of hanging a basket of sandwiches on his spear. There was probably not a knight of all the round-table combination who would not rather have died than have been caught carrying such a thing as that on his flagstaff. And yet there could not be anything more sensible. It had been my intention to smuggle a couple of sandwiches into my helmet, but I was interrupted in the act, and had to make an excuse and lay them aside, and a dog got them. Night approached, and with it a storm. The darkness came on fast. We must camp, of course. I found a good shelter for the demoiselle under a rock, and went off and found another for myself. But I was obliged to remain in my armor, because I could not get it off by myself, and yet could not allow Alessandre to help, because it would have seemed so like undressing before folk. It would not have amounted to that in reality, because I had clothes on underneath, but the prejudices of one's breeding are not gotten rid of just at a jump, and I knew that when it came to stripping off that bob-tailed iron petticoat, I should have been embarrassed. With the storm came a change of weather, and the stronger the wind blew, and the wilder the rain lashed around, the colder and colder it got. Pretty soon various kinds of bugs and ants and worms and things began to flock in out of the wet, and crawl down inside my armor to get warm and while some of them behaved well enough, and snuggled up amongst my clothes and got quiet, the majority were of a restless, uncomfortable sort, and never stayed still, but went on prowling and hunting, for they did not know what, especially the ants, which went tickling along in worrisome procession from one end of me to the other by the hour, and are a kind of creatures which I never wish to sleep with again. It would be my advice to persons situated in this way to not roll or thrash around, because this excites the interest of all the different sorts of animals, and makes every last one of them want to turn out and see what is going on, and this makes things worse than they were before, and of course makes you objurgate harder, too, if you can. Still, if one did not roll and thrash around, he would die, so perhaps it is as well to do one way as the other. There is no real choice. Even after I was frozen solid I could still distinguish that tickling, just as a corpse does when he is taking electric treatment. I said I would never wear armor after this trip. All those trying hours, whilst I was frozen, and yet was in a living fire, as you may say, on account of that swarm of crawlers, that same unanswerable question kept circling and circling through my tired head, how do people stand this miserable armor? How have they managed to stand it all these generations? And how can they sleep at night for dreading the tortures of next day? When the morning came at last I was in a bad enough plight, seedy, drowsy, fagged from want of sleep, 
weary from thrashing around famished from long fasting pining for a bath and to get rid of the animals and crippled with rheumatism and how had it fared with the nobly born the titled aristocrat the demoiselle alessandre de la carteloise why she was as fresh as a squirrel she had slept like the dead and as for a bath probably neither she nor any other noble in the land had ever had one and so she was not missing it measured by modern standards they were merely modified savages those people this noble lady showed no impatience to get to breakfast and that smacks of the savage too on their journeys those britons were used to long fasts and knew how to bear them and also how to freight up against the probable fasts before starting after the style of the indian and the anaconda as like as not sandy was loaded for a three-day stretch we were off before sunrise sandy riding and i limping along behind in half an hour we came upon a group of ragged poor creatures who had assembled to mend the thing which was regarded as a road they were as humble as animals to me and when i proposed to breakfast with them they were so flattered so overwhelmed by this extraordinary condescension of mine that at first they were not able to believe that i was in earnest my lady put up her scornful lip and withdrew to one side she said in their hearing that she would as soon think of eating with the other cattle a remark which embarrassed these poor devils merely because it referred to them and not because it insulted or offended them for it didn't and yet they were not slaves not chattels by a sarcasm of law and phrase they were freemen seven-tenths of the free population of the country were of just their class and degree small independent farmers artisans etc which is to say they were the nation the actual nation they were about all of it that was useful or worth saving or really respectworthy and to subtract them would have been to subtract the nation and leave behind some dregs some refuse in the shape of a king nobility and gentry idle unproductive acquainted mainly with the arts of wasting and destroying and of no sort of use or value in any rationally constructed world and yet by ingenious contrivance this gilded minority instead of being in the tail of the procession where it belonged was marching head up and banners flying at the other end of it had elected itself to be the nation and these innumerable clams had permitted it so long that they had come at last to accept it as a truth and not only that but to believe it right and as it should be the priests had told their fathers and themselves that this ironical state of things was ordained of god and so not reflecting upon how unlike god it would be to amuse himself with sarcasms and especially such poor transparent ones as this they had dropped the matter there and become respectfully quiet the talk of these meek people had a strange enough sound in a formerly american ear they were freemen but they could not leave the estates of their lord or their bishop without his permission they could not prepare their own bread but must have their corn ground and their bread baked at his mill and his bakery and pay roundly for the same they could not sell a piece of their own property without paying him a handsome percentage of the proceeds nor buy a piece of somebody else's without remembering him in cash for the privilege they had to harvest his grain for him gratis and be ready to come at a moment's notice leaving their own crop to destruction by the threatened storm they had to let him plant fruit trees in their fields and then keep their indignation to themselves when his heedless fruit-gatherers trampled the grain around the trees 
they had to smother their anger when his hunting-parties galloped through their fields laying waste the result of their patient toil they were not allowed to keep doves themselves and when the swarms from my lord's dove-coat settled on their crops they must not lose their temper and kill a bird for awful would the penalty be when the harvest was at last gathered then came the procession of robbers to levy their blackmail upon it first the church carted off its fat tenth then the king's commissioner took his twentieth then my lord's people made a mighty inroad upon the remainder after which the skinned freeman had liberty to bestow the remnant in his barn in case it was worth the trouble there were taxes and taxes and taxes and more taxes and taxes again and yet other taxes upon this free and independent pauper but none upon his lord the baron or the bishop none upon the wasteful nobility or the all-devouring church if the baron would sleep unvexed the free man must sit up all night after his day's work and whip the ponds to keep the frogs quiet if the free man's daughter uh, but no that last infamy of monarchical government is unprintable and finally if the free man grown desperate with his tortures found his life unendurable under such conditions and sacrificed it and fled to death for mercy and refuge the gentle church condemned him to eternal fire the gentle law buried him at midnight at the crossroads with a stake through his back and his master the baron or the bishop confiscated all his property and turned his widow and his orphans out of doors and here were these freemen assembled in the early morning to work on their lord the bishop's road three days each gratis every head of a family and every son of a family three days each gratis and a day or so added for their servants why it was like reading about france and the french before the ever memorable and blessed revolution which swept a thousand years of such villainy away in one swift tidal wave of blood one a settlement of that hoary debt in the proportion of half a drop of blood for each hogshead of it that had been pressed by slow tortures out of that people in the weary stretch of ten centuries of wrong and shame and misery the like of which was not to be mated but in hell there were two reigns of terror if we would but remember it and consider it the one wrought murder in hot passion the other in heartless cold blood the one lasted mere months the other had lasted a thousand years the one inflicted death upon ten thousand persons the other upon a hundred millions but our shudders are all for the horrors of the minor terror the momentary terror so to speak whereas what is the horror of swift death by the axe compared with life-long death from hunger cold insult cruelty and heartbreak what is swift death by lightning compared with death by slow fire at the stake a city cemetery could contain the coffins filled by that brief terror which we have all been so diligently taught to shiver at and mourn over but all france could hardly contain the coffins filled by that older and real terror that unspeakably bitter and awful terror which none of us has been taught to see in its vastness or pity as it deserves these poor ostensible free men who were sharing their breakfast and their talk with me were as full of humble reverence for their king and church and nobility as their worst enemy could desire there was something pitifully ludicrous about it 
I asked them if they supposed a nation of people ever existed who, with a free vote in every man's hand, would elect that a single family and its descendants should reign over it forever, whether gifted or boobies, to the exclusion of all other families, including the voters, and would also elect that a certain hundred families should be raised to dizzy summits of rank, and clothed on with offensive transmissible glories and privileges to the exclusion of the rest of the nation's families, including his own. They all looked unhit, and said they didn't know, that they had never thought about it before, and it had never occurred to them that a nation could be so situated that every man could have a say in the government. I said I had seen one, and that it would last until it had an established church. Again they were all unhit at first. But presently one man looked up and asked me to state that proposition again, and state it slowly, so it could soak into his understanding. I did it, and after a little he had the idea, and he brought his fist down and said he didn't believe a nation where every man had a vote would voluntarily get down in the mud and dirt in any such way, and that to steal from a nation its will and preference must be a crime, and the first of all crimes. I said to myself, this one's a man. If I were backed by enough of his sort, I would make a strike for the welfare of this country, and try to prove myself its loyalist citizen by making a wholesome change in its system of government. You see, my kind of loyalty was loyalty to one's country, not to its institutions or its office-holders. The country is the real thing, the substantial thing, the eternal thing. It is the thing to watch over, and care for, and be loyal to. Institutions are extraneous. They are its mere clothing, and clothing can wear out, become ragged, cease to be comfortable, cease to protect the body from winter, disease, and death. To be loyal to rags, to shout for rags, to worship rags, to die for rags, that is a loyalty of unreason, it is pure animal it belongs to monarchy, was invented by monarchy. Let monarchy keep it. I was from Connecticut, whose constitution declares that all political power is inherent in the people, and all free governments are founded on their authority and instituted for their benefit, and that they have at all times an undeniable and indefeasible right to alter their form of government in such a manner as they may think expedient." Under that gospel, the citizen who thinks he sees that the commonwealth's political clothes are worn out, and yet holds his peace and does not agitate for a new suit, is disloyal. He is a traitor. That he may be the only one who thinks he sees this decay does not excuse him. It is his duty to agitate anyway, and it is the duty of the others to vote him down if they do not see the matter as he does. And now here I was, in a country where a right to say how the country should be governed was restricted to six persons in each thousand of its population. For the nine hundred and ninety-four to express dissatisfaction with the regnant system, and propose to change it, would have made the whole six shudder as one man. It would have been so disloyal, so dishonorable, such putrid black treason." So to speak, I was to become a stockholder in a corporation where nine hundred and ninety-four of the members furnished all the money and did all the work, and the other six elected themselves a permanent board of direction and took all the dividends. It seemed to me that what the nine hundred and ninety-four dupes needed was a new deal. 
the thing that would have best suited the circus side of my nature would have been to resign the boss-ship and get up an insurrection and turn it into a revolution but i knew that the jack cade or the watt tyler who tries such a thing without first educating his materials up to revolution grade is almost absolutely certain to get left i had never been accustomed to getting left even if i do say it myself wherefore the deal which had been for some time working into shape in my mind was of a quite different pattern from the cade tyler sort so i did not talk blood and insurrection to that man there who sat munching black bread with that abused and mistaught herd of human sheep but took him aside and talked matter of another sort to him after i had finished i got him to lend me a little ink from his veins and with this and a sliver i wrote on a piece of bark put him in the man-factory and gave it to him and said take it to the palace at camelot and give it into the hands of amias le poulet whom i call clarence and he will understand he is a priest then said the man and some of the enthusiasm went out of his face how a priest didn't i tell you that no chattel of the church no bond slave of pope or bishop can enter my man factory didn't i tell you that you couldn't enter unless your religion whatever it might be was your own free property marry it is so and for that i was glad wherefore it liked me not and bred in me a cold doubt to hear of this priest being there but he isn't a priest i tell you the man looked far from satisfied he said he is not a priest and yet can read he is not a priest and yet can read yes and write too for that matter i taught him myself the man's face cleared and it is the first thing that you yourself will be taught in that factory i i would give blood out of my heart to know that art why i will be your slave your no you won't you won't be anybody's slave take your family and go along your lord the bishop will confiscate your small property but no matter clarence will fix you all right End of chapter 13 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court Chapter 14 Defend Thee, Lord I paid three pennies for my breakfast, and a most extravagant price it was, too, seeing that one could have breakfast a dozen persons for that money. But I was feeling good by this time, and I had always been a kind of spendthrift anyway and then these people had wanted to give me the food for nothing scant as their provision was and so it was a grateful pleasure to emphasize my appreciation and sincere thankfulness with a good big financial lift where the money would do so much more good than it would in my helmet where these pennies being made of iron and not stinted in weight my half dollar's worth was a good deal of a burden to me i spent money rather too freely in those days it is true but one reason for it was that i hadn't got the proportions of things entirely adjusted even yet after so long a sojourn in britain hadn't got along to where i was able to absolutely realize that a penny in arthur's land and a couple of dollars in connecticut were about one and the same thing just twins as you may say in purchasing power if my start from camelot could have been delayed a very few days I could have paid these people in beautiful new coins from our own mint, and that would have pleased me, and them too, not less. I had adopted the American values exclusively. In a week or two now, cents, nickels, dimes, quarters, and half-dollars, and also a trifle of gold, 
would be trickling in thin but steady streams all through the commercial veins of the kingdom, and I looked to see this new blood freshen up its life. The farmers were bound to throw in something to sort of offset my liberality, whether I would or no, so I let them give me a flint and steel, and as soon as they had comfortably bestowed Sandy and me on our horse, I lit my pipe. When the first blast of smoke shot out through the bars of my helmet, all those people broke for the woods, and Sandy went over backwards and struck the ground with a dull thud. They thought I was one of those fire-belching dragons they had heard so much about from knights and other professional liars. I had infinite trouble to persuade those people to venture back within explaining distance. Then I told them that this was only a bit of enchantment which would work harm to none but my enemies, and I promised, with my hand on my heart, that if all who felt no enmity toward me would come forward and pass before me, they should see that only those who remained behind would be struck dead. The procession moved with a good deal of promptness. There were no casualties to report, for nobody had curiosity enough to remain behind to see what would happen. I lost some time now, for these big children, their fears gone, became so ravaged with wonder over my awe-compelling fireworks that I had to stay there and smoke a couple of pipes out before they would let me go. Still the delay was not wholly unproductive, for it took all that time to get Sandy thoroughly wanted to the new thing, she being so close to it, you know. It plugged up her conversation mill, too, for a considerable while, and that was a gain. But above all other benefits accruing, I had learned something. I was ready for any giant or any ogre that might come along now. We tarried with a holy hermit that night, and my opportunity came about the middle of the next afternoon. We were crossing a vast meadow by way of shortcut, and I was musing absently, hearing nothing, seeing nothing, when Sandy suddenly interrupted a remark which she had begun that morning, with a cry, "'Defend thee, Lord! Peril of life is toward!' And she slipped down from the horse and ran a little way, and stood. I looked up and saw, far off in the shade of a tree, half a dozen armed knights and their squires, and straightway there was bustle among them and tightening of saddle-girths for the mount. My pipe was ready and would have been lit, if I had not been lost in thinking about how to banish oppression from this land and restore to all its people their stolen rights and manhood without disobliging anybody. I lit up at once, and by the time I had got a good head of reserved steam on, here they came. All together, too. None of those chivalrous magnanimities which one reads so much about, one courtly rascal at a time, and the rest standing by to see fair play. No, they came in a body. They came with a whir and a rush. They came like a volley from a battery. Came with heads low down, plumes streaming out behind, lances advanced at a level. It was a handsome sight, a beautiful sight a man up a tree. I laid my lance in rest and waited, with my heart beating, till the iron wave was just ready to break over me, then spouted a column of white smoke through the bars of my helmet. You should have seen the wave go to pieces and scatter. This was a finer sight than the other one. But these people stopped two or three hundred yards away, and this troubled me. My satisfaction collapsed, and fear came. I judged I was a lost man. But Sandy was radiant, and was going to be eloquent, but I stopped her, and told her my magic had miscarried somehow or other, and she must mount, with all dispatch, and we must ride for life. No, she wouldn't. She said that my enchantment had disabled those knights. They were not riding on, because they couldn't. Wait! 
they would drop out of their saddles presently, and we would get their horses and harness. I could not deceive such trusting simplicity, so I said it was a mistake, that when my fireworks killed at all they killed instantly. No, the men would not die. There was something wrong about my apparatus. I couldn't tell what. But we must hurry and get away, for those people would attack us again in a minute. Sandy laughed, and said, "'Lack a day, sir! They be not of that breed. Sir Lancelot will give battle to dragons, and will abide by them, and will assail them again, and yet again, and still again, until he do conquer and destroy them. And so likewise will Sir Pellinore, and Sir Aglavale, and Sir Carados, and mayhap others. But there be none else that will venture it. Let the idle say what the idle will.' and la as to yonder base rufflers think ye they have not their fill but yet desire more well then uh, what are they waiting for why don't they leave nobody's hindering good land i'm willing to let bygones be bygones i'm sure leave is it oh give thyself easement as to that they dream not of it no not they they wait to yield them come really is that sooth as you people say if they want to why don't they it would like them much but an ye wot how dragons are esteemed ye would not hold them blamable they fear to come well then i suppose i go to them instead and ah wit ye well they would not abide your coming i will go and she did she was a handy person to have along on a raid i would have considered this a doubtful errand myself I presently saw the knights riding away, and Sandy coming back. That was a relief. I judged she had somehow failed to get the first innings—I mean, in the conversation. Otherwise the interview wouldn't have been so short. But it turned out that she had managed the business well—in fact, admirably. She said that when she told those people I was the boss, it hit them where they lived. Smote them sore with fear and dread was her word and then they were ready to put up with anything she might require. So she swore them to appear at Arthur's court within two days, and yield them, with horse and harness, and be my knights henceforth, and subject to my command. How much better she managed that thing than I should have done it myself! She was a daisy! End of chapter 14 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court by Mark Twain Chapter 15 Sandy's tale. And so I'm proprietor of some knights, said I, as we rode off. Who would ever have supposed that I should live to list up assets of that sort? I shan't know what to do with them, unless I raffle them off. How many of them are there, Sandy? Seven, please you, sir, and their squires. It is a good haul. Who are they? Where do they hang out? Where do they hang out? Uh, yes, uh, where do they live? Ah, I understood thee not. That will I tell eftsoons. Then she said musingly, and softly, turning the words daintily over her tongue, Hang they out, hang they out, where hang? Where do they hang out? Eh, right so, where do they hang out? Of a truth the phrase hath a fair and winsome grace, and is prettily worded withal. I will repeat it anon and anon in mine eyeless, whereby I may peradventure learn it, where do they hang out? Even so, already it falleth trippingly from my tongue, and forasmuch as— Don't forget the cowboys, Sandy. Cowboys? Yes, the knights, you know. You were going to tell me about them a while back, you remember? Figuratively speaking, uh, games called— Game? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, go to the bat. 
I mean, get to work on your statistics. And don't burn so much kindling getting your fires started. Tell me about the nights. I will well, and lightly will begin. So they two departed, and rode into a great forest, and— Great Scott! You see, I recognized my mistake at once. I had set her works a-going. It was my own fault. She would be thirty days getting down to those facts, and she generally began without a preface and finished without a result. If you interrupted her, she would either go right along without noticing, or answer with a couple of words and go back and say the sentence over again. So interruptions only did harm. And yet I had to interrupt, and interrupt pretty frequently, too, in order to save my life. A person would die if he let her monotony drip on him right along all day. "'Great Scott!' I said in my distress. She went right back, and began over again. "'So they two departed, and rode into a great forest, and—' "'Which two? "'Sir Gawain and Sir Ewain. And so they came to an abbey of monks, and there were well lodged. So on the morn they heard their masses in the abbey, and so they rode forth till they came to a great forest. Then was Sir Gawain where in a valley by a turret of twelve fair damsels, and two knights armed on great horses, and the damsels went to and fro by a tree. And then was Sir Gawain where how there hung a white shield on that tree, and ever as the damsels came by it they spit upon it, and some threw mire upon the shield. Now, if I hadn't seen the like myself in this country, Sandy, I wouldn't believe it. But I've seen it, and I can just see those creatures now parading before that shield and acting like that. The women here do certainly act like all possessed. Yes, and I mean your best, too, society's very choicest brands. The humblest hello-girl along ten thousand miles of wire could teach gentleness, patience, modesty, manners to the highest duchess in Arthur's land. Hello, girl? Yes, uh, but don't you ask me to explain. It's a new kind of girl. They don't have them here. One often speaks sharply to them when they are not the least in fault, and he can't get over feeling sorry for it and ashamed of himself in thirteen hundred years. It's such shabby, mean conduct, and so unprovoked. The fact is, no gentleman ever does it, though. I, well, I myself, if I've got to confess— Perventure, she— Never mind her. Never mind her. I tell you, I couldn't ever explain her so you would understand. Even so be it, sith ye are so minded. Then Sir Gawain and Sir Ewain went and saluted them, and asked them why they did that despite to the shield. Sirs, said the damsels, we shall tell you. There is a knight in this county that owneth this white shield, and he is a passing good man of his hands, but he hateth all ladies and gentlewomen, and therefore we do all this despite to the shield. I will say you, said Sir Gawain, it beseemeth evil a good knight to despise all ladies and gentlewomen, and peradventure, though he hate you, he hath some cause, and peradventure he loveth in some other places ladies and gentlewomen, and to be loved again, and he such a man of prowess as ye speak of. Man of prowess, yes, uh, that is the man to please them, Sandy. Man of brains, that is a thing they never think of. Tom Sayers, John Heenan, John L. Sullivan. Pity but you could be here. You would have your legs under the round table, and sir, in front of your names within the twenty-four hours. And you could bring about a new distribution of the married princesses and duchesses of the court in another twenty-four. The fact is, it is just a sort of polished-up court of Comanches, 
and there isn't a squaw in it who doesn't stand ready at the dropping of a hat to desert to the buck with the biggest strings of scalps at his belt. "'And he be such a man of prowess as ye speak of,' said Sir Gawaine. "'Now, what is his name?' "'Sir,' said they, "'his name is Marhaus, the king's son of Ireland.' "'Son of the king of Ireland, you mean. The other form doesn't mean anything.' and look out and hold on tight now we must jump this gully there we are all right now this horse belongs in the circus he is born before his time i know him well said sir uwaine he is a passing good knight as any is on live on live if you've got a fault in the world sandy it is that you are a shade too archaic uh, but it isn't any matter for i saw him once proved at a justs where many knights were gathered and that time there might no man withstand him. Ah, said Sir Gawain, damsels, methinketh ye are to blame, for it is to suppose he that hung that shield there will not be long therefrom, and then may those knights match him on horseback, and that is more your worship than thus, for I will abide no longer to see a knight's shield dishonored. And therewith Sir Uwain and Sir Gawain departed a little from them, and then were they where where Sir Marhaus came riding on a great horse straight toward them. And when the twelve damsels saw Sir Marhaus, they fled into the turret as they were wild, so that some of them fell by the way. Then the one of the knights of the tower dressed his shield, and said on high, Sir Marhaus, defend thee! And so they ran together that the knight brake his spear on Marhaus, and Sir Marhaus smote him so hard that he brake his neck and the horse's back. Well, that is just the trouble about this state of things. It ruins so many horses. That saw the other knight of the turret, and dressed him toward Marhaus, and they went so eagerly together, that the knight of the turret was soon smitten down, horse and man, stark dead. Another horse gone. I tell you, it is a custom that ought to be broken up. I don't see how people with any feeling can applaud and support it. So these knights came together with great random— I saw that I had been asleep and missed a chapter. But I didn't say anything. I judged that the Irish knight was in trouble with the visitors by this time, and this turned out to be the case. That Sir Uwaine smote Sir Marhaus that his spear breast in pieces on the shield, and Sir Marhaus smote him so sore that horse and man he bare to the earth, and hurt Sir Uwaine on the left side. The truth is, Alessandre, these archaics are a little too simple. The vocabulary is too limited, and so, by consequence, descriptions suffer in the matter of variety. They run too much to level Saharas of fact, and not enough to picturesque detail. This throws about them a certain air of the monotonous. In fact, the fights are all alike. A couple of people come together with great random—random is a good word— and so is exegesis, for that matter, and, and so is holocaust, and defalcation, and usufruct, and a hundred others. But land! A body ought to discriminate. They come together with great random, and a spear is brassed, and one party break his shield, and the other one goes down, horse and man, over his horse-tail, and break his neck, and then the next candidate comes randoming in, and brassed his spear, and the other man brassed his shield, and down he goes, horse and man, over his horse-tail, and break his neck, and then there's another elected, and another, and another, and still another, till the material is all used up. And when you come to figure up results, you can't tell one fight from another. 
nor who whipped and as a picture of living raging roaring battle show sure, why it's pale and noiseless just ghosts scuffling in a fog dear me what would this barren vocabulary get out of the mightiest spectacle the burning of rome in nero's time for instance why it would merely say towns burned down no insurance boy brast a window fireman break his neck why that ain't a picture it was a good deal of a lecture i thought but it didn't disturb sandy didn't turn a feather her steam soared steadily up again the minute i took off the lid then sir marhas turned his horse and rode toward gawain with his spear and when sir gawain saw that he dressed his shield and they adventured their spears and they came together with all the might of their horses that either knight smote other so hard in the midst of their shields but sir gawain's spear brake i knew it would but sir marhaus's spear held and therewith sir gawain and his horse rushed down to the earth just so and brake his back and lightly sir gawain rose upon his feet and pulled out his sword and dressed him toward Sir Marhaus on foot, and therewith either came unto other eagerly, and smote together with their swords, that their shields flew in cantels, and they bruised their helms and their hauberks, and wounded either other. But Sir Gawain fro it past nine of the clock, waxed by the space of three hours ever stronger and stronger, and thrice his might was increased. All this espied Sir Marhaus and had great wonder how his might increased, and so they wounded other passing sore. And then, when it was come noon, the pelting sing-song of it carried me forward to scenes and sounds of my boyhood days. Nee-oo, haven, ten minutes for refreshments. Kendruckle, strike the gong-bell two minutes before the train leaves. Passengers for the shore-line, please take seats in the rear car. This car don't go no farther apples oranges bananas sandwiches pop corn and waxed past noon and drew toward evensong sir gawain's strength feebled and waxed passing faint that unethus he might dure any longer and sir marhaus was then bigger and bigger which strained his armor of course and yet little would one of these people mind a small thing like that and so sir knight said sir marhaus i have well felt that year a passing good knight and a marvellous man of might as ever if i felt any while it lasteth and our quarrels are not great and therefore it were a pity to do you hurt for i feel you are passing feeble ah said sir gawain gentle knight ye say the word that i should say and therewith they took off their helms and either kissed other and there they swore together either to love other as brethren but i lost the thread there and dozed off to slumber thinking about what a pity it was that men with such superb strength strength enabling them to stand up cased in cruelly burdensome iron and drenched with perspiration and hack and batter and bang each other for six hours on a stretch should not have been born at a time when they could put it to some useful purpose take a jackass for instance a jackass has that kind of strength and puts it to a useful purpose and is valuable to this world because he is a jackass but a nobleman is not valuable because he is a jackass it is a mixture that is always ineffectual and should never have been attempted in the first place and yet once you start a mistake the trouble is done and you never know what is going to come of it 
when i came to myself again and began to listen i perceived that i had lost another chapter and that alisande had wandered a long way off with her people and so they rode and came into a deep valley full of stones and thereby they saw a fair stream of water above thereby was the head of the stream a fair fountain and three damsels sitting thereby in this country said sir marhaus came never knight since it was christened but he found strange adventures this is not good form alisande sir marhaus the king's son of ireland talks like all the rest you ought to give him a brogue or at least a characteristic expletive by this means one would recognize him as soon as he spoke without his ever being named it is a common literary device with the great authors you should make him say in this country be jabbers came never night since it was christened and he found strange adventures be jabbers you see how much better that sounds came never night but he found strange adventures be jabbers of a truth it doth indeed fair lord albeit tis passing hard to say though peradventure that will not tarry but better speed with usage and then they rode to the damsels and either saluted other and the eldest had a garland of gold about her head and she was threescore winter of age or more the damsel was even so dear lord and her hair was white under the garland celluloid teeth nine dollars a set as like as not the loose fit kind that go up and down like a portcullis when you eat and fall out when you laugh the second damsel was of thirty winter of age with a circlet of gold about her head the third damsel was but fifteen years of age billows of thought came rolling over my soul and the voice faded out of my hearing fifteen break my heart oh my lost darling just her age who was so gentle and lovely and all the world to me and whom i shall never see again how the thought of her carries me back over wide seas of memory to a vague dim time a happy time so many many centuries hence when i used to wake in the soft summer mornings out of the sweet dreams of her and say hello central just to hear her dear voice come melting back to me with a hello hank that was music of the spheres to my enchanted ear she got three dollars a week but she was worth it i could not follow alisande's further explanation of who our captured knights were now i mean in case she should ever get to explaining who they were my interest was gone my thoughts were far away and sad by fitful glimpses of the drifting tale caught here and there and now and then i merely noted in a vague way that each of these three knights took one of these three damsels up behind him on his horse and one rode north another east the other south to seek adventures and meet again and lie after a year and day year and day and without baggage it was of a piece with the general simplicity of the country the sun was now setting it was about three in the afternoon when alisande had begun to tell me who the cowboys were so she had made pretty good progress with it for her she would arrive some time or other no doubt but she was not a person who could be hurried we were approaching a castle which stood on high ground a huge strong venerable structure whose gray towers and battlements were charmingly draped with ivy and whose whole majestic mass was drenched with splendors flung from the sinking sun it was the largest castle we had seen and so i thought it might be the one we were after but sandy said no she did not know who owned it 
She said she had passed it without calling when she went down to Camelot. End of chapter 15 A Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court, Chapter 16, Morgan Le Fay if knights-errant were to be believed, not all castles were desirable places to seek hospitality in. As a matter of fact, knights-errant were not persons to be believed, that is, measured by modern standards of veracity. Yet, measured by the standards of their own time, and scaled accordingly, you got the truth. It was very simple. You discounted a statement ninety-seven per cent. The rest was fact. Now, after making this allowance, the truth remained that if I could find out something about a castle before ringing the doorbell—I mean, hailing the warders—it was the sensible thing to do. So I was pleased when I saw in the distance a horseman making the bottom turn of the road that wound down from this castle. As we approached each other I saw that he wore a plumed helmet, and seemed to be otherwise clothed in steel, but bore a curious addition also a stiff square garment like a herald's tabard. However, I had to smile at my own forgetfulness when I got nearer and read this sign on his tabard. Persimmon's soap! All the prima donna use it. That was a little idea of my own, and had several wholesome purposes in view toward the civilizing and uplifting of this nation. In the first place it was a furtive, underhand blow at this nonsense of knight-errantry, though nobody suspected that but me. I had started a number of these people out, the bravest knights I could get, each sandwiched between bulletin-boards bearing one device or another, and I judged that by and by, when they got to be numerous enough, they would begin to look ridiculous, and then even the steel-clad ass that hadn't any board would himself begin to look ridiculous, because he was out of the fashion. Secondly, these missionaries would gradually, and without creating suspicion or exciting alarm, introduce a rudimentary cleanliness among the nobility, and from them it would work down to the people, if the priests could be kept quiet. This would undermine the church, I mean, would be a step toward that. Next, education. Next, freedom. And then she would begin to crumble it being my conviction that any established church is an established crime, an established slave-pen, I had no scruples, but was willing to assail it in any way or with any weapon that promised to hurt it. Why, in my own former day, in remote centuries not yet stirring in the womb of time, there were old English men who imagined that they had been born in a free country, a free country with the Corporation Act and the test still in force in it, timbers propped against men's liberties and dishonored consciences to shore up an established anachronism with. My missionaries were taught to spell out the gilt signs on their tabards. The showy gilding was a neat idea. I could have got the king to wear a bulletin-board for the sake of that barbaric splendor. They were to spell out these signs, and then explain to the lords and ladies what soap was, and if the lords and ladies were afraid of it, get them to try it on a dog. The missionary's next move was to get the family together and try it on himself. He was to stop at no experiment, however desperate, that could convince the nobility that soap was harmless. If any final doubt remained, he must catch a hermit. The woods were full of them. Saints they called themselves, and saints they were believed to be. They were unspeakably holy, and worked miracles, and everybody stood in awe of them 
if a hermit could survive a wash and that failed to convince the duke give him up let him alone whenever my missionaries overcame a knight errant on the road they washed him and when he got well they swore him to go and get a bulletin board and disseminate soap and civilization the rest of his days as a consequence the workers in the field were increasing by degrees and the reform was steadily spreading my soap factory felt the strain early at first i had only two hands but before i had left home i was already employing fifteen and running night and day and the atmospheric result was getting so pronounced that the king went sort of fainting and gasping around and said he did not believe he could stand it much longer and sir lancelot got so that he did hardly anything but walk up and down the roof and swear although i told him it was worse up there than anywhere else but he said he wanted plenty of air and he was always complaining that a palace was no place for a soap factory anyway and said if a man was to start one in his house he would be damned if he wouldn't strangle him there were ladies present too but much these people ever cared for that they could swear before children if the wind was their way when the factory was going this missionary knight's name was la cote mal and he said that his castle was the abode of morgan le fay sister of king arthur and wife of king uriens monarch of a realm about as big as the district of columbia you could stand in the middle of it and throw bricks into the next kingdom kings and kingdoms were as thick in britain as they had been in little palestine in joshua's time when people had to sleep with their knees pulled up because they couldn't stretch out without a passport la cote was much depressed for he had scored here the worst failure of his campaign he had not worked off a cake yet he had tried all the tricks of the trade even to the washing of a hermit but the hermit died this was indeed a bad failure for this animal would now be dubbed a martyr and would take his place among the saints of the roman calendar thus made he his moan this poor sir la cote maltail and sorrowed passing sore and so my heart bled for him and i was moved to comfort and stay him wherefore i said forbear to grieve fair knight for this is not a defeat we have brains you and i and for such as have brains there are no defeats but only victories observe how we will turn this seeming disaster into an advertisement an advertisement for our soap and the biggest one to draw that was ever thought of an advertisement that will transform that mount washington defeat into a matterhorn victory we will put on your bulletin board patronized by the elect how does that strike you verily it is wonderfully bethought well a body is bound to admit that for just a modest little one-line ad it's a corker so the poor coal-porter's grief vanished away he was a brave fellow and had done mighty feats of arms in his time his chief celebrity rested upon the events of an excursion like this one of mine which he had once made with a damsel named maledisson who was as handy with her tongue as was sandy though in a different way for her tongue churned forth only railings and insult whereas sandy's music was of a kindlier sort i knew his story well and so i knew how to interpret the compassion that was in his face when he bade me farewell he supposed i was having a bitter hard time of it sandy and i discussed his story as we rode along and she said that lacote's bad luck had begun with the very beginning of that trip 
for the king's fool had overthrown him on the first day and in such cases it was customary for the girl to desert to the conqueror but maledisant didn't do it and also persisted afterward in sticking to him after all his defeats but said i suppose the victor should decline to accept his spoil she said that that wouldn't answer he must he couldn't decline it wouldn't be regular i made a note of that if sandy's music got to be too burdensome some time i would let a knight defeat me on the chance that she would desert to him in due time we were challenged by the warders from the castle walls and after a parley admitted i have nothing pleasant to tell about that visit but it was not a disappointment for i knew mrs le fay by reputation and was not expecting anything pleasant she was held in awe by the whole realm for she had made everybody believe she was a great sorceress all her ways were wicked all her instincts devilish she was loaded to the eyelids with cold malice all her history was black with crime and among her crimes murder was common i was most curious to see her as curious as i could have been to see satan to my surprise she was beautiful black thoughts had failed to make her expression repulsive age had failed to wrinkle her satin skin or mar its bloomy freshness she could have passed for old urien's granddaughter she could have been mistaken for sister to her own son as soon as we were fairly within the castle gates we were ordered into her presence king uriens was there a kind-faced old man with a subdued look and also the son sir uwaine le blanchemains in whom i was of course interested on account of the tradition that he had once done battle with thirty knights and also on account of his trip with sir gawain and sir marhaus which sandy had been aging me with but morgan was the main attraction the conspicuous personality here she was head chief of this household and that was plain she caused us to be seated and then she began with all manner of pretty graces and graciousness to ask me questions dear me it was like a bird or a flute or something talking i felt persuaded that this woman must have been misrepresented lied about she trilled along and trilled along and presently a handsome young page clothed like the rainbow and as easy and undulatory of movement as a wave came with something on a golden slalver and kneeling to present it to her overdid his graces and lost his balance and so fell lightly against her knee she slipped a dirk into him in as matter-of-fact a way as another person would have harpooned a rat poor child he slumped to the floor twisted his silken limbs in one great straining contortion of pain and was dead out of the old king was wrung an involuntary oh of compassion the look he got made him cut it suddenly short and not put any more hyphens in it sir uwaine at a sign from his mother went to the anteroom and called some servants and meanwhile madame went rippling sweetly along with her talk i saw that she was a good housekeeper for while she talked she kept a corner of her eye on the servants to see that they made no balks in handling the body and getting it out when they came with fresh clean towels she sent back for the other kind and when they had finished wiping the floor and were going she indicated a crimson fleck the size of a tear which their duller eyes had overlooked it was plain to me that la cote maltaile had failed to see the mistress of the house often how louder and clearer than any tongue does dumb circumstantial evidence speak 
Morgan Le Fay rippled along as musically as ever, marvelous woman, and what a glance she had! When it fell in reproof upon those servants, they shrunk and quailed as timid people do when the lightning flashes out of a cloud. I could have got the habit myself. It was the same with that poor old Br'er Urien's. He was always on the ragged edge of apprehension. She could not even turn toward him, but he winced. In the midst of the talk I let drop a complimentary word about King Arthur, forgetting for the moment how this woman hated her brother. That one little compliment was enough. She clouded up like storm. She called for her guards and said, "'Hail me these varlets to the dungeons!' That struck cold on my ears, for her dungeons had a reputation. Nothing occurred to me to say or do, but not so with Sandy. As the guard laid a hand upon me, she piped up with the tranquillest confidence, and said, "'God's wounds! Dost thou covet destruction, thou maniac? It is the boss!' Now, what a happy idea that was, and so simple! Yet it would never have occurred to me. I was born modest, not all over, but in spots, and this was one of the spots. The effect upon Madame was electrical. It cleared her countenance and brought back her smiles and all her persuasive graces and blandishments, but nevertheless she was not able to entirely cover up with them the fact that she was in a ghastly fright. She said, "'La, but do list to thine handmaid, as if one gifted with powers like to mine might say the thing which I have said unto one who has vanquished Merlin, and not be jesting.' by mine enchantments i foresaw your coming and by them i knew you when you entered here i did but play this little jest with hope to surprise you into some display of your art as not doubting you would blast the guards with occult fires consuming them to ashes on the spot a marvel much beyond mine own ability yet one which i have long been childishly curious to see the guards were less curious and got out as soon as they got permission. End of chapter 16